Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. The principles of individual economic and political freedom, private enterprise, and limited representative government were, were fundamental to the vision of our founder, Herbert Hoover, and remain as compelling today as they were more than a century ago. A preeminent research center, the institution has remained steadfast in its commitment to finding solutions grounded in history, data, and logic to, to the many difficult challenges we face. The dissemination of our work has led to significant impacts on important public policy initiatives here and around the world. These briefings provide an opportunity to hear directly from some of our distinguished scholars on a wide range of domestic and international issues. Thank you for joining us today and I hope you benefit from the discussion. As a reminder, we will be taking questions and I encourage you to submit yours using the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today's discussion is with Stephen Kotkin on China, Russia, and American freedom. Stephen is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of history and international affairs at Princeton University. In addition to conducting research in the Hoover Library and Archives for three decades, he is also founder of Princeton's Global History Initiative. His work encompasses geopolitics and authoritarian regimes, both in current times and throughout history. Stephen, welcome, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Thank you for the honor of the invitation. Great to be here, Tom. Great. Let's start with China. Uh, suddenly, everybody's discovered that China represents a threat to U.S. freedom. But let's back up a little bit. Uh, when did China uh, not, why did China not liberalize politi politically while, while it went through a very aggressive plan of liberalizing economically after Mao? So China never promised that it would liberalize politically. Uh, we promised it on their behalf. And it was an illusion on our part. Uh, communist regimes, even when they are zombies ideologically, retain the Leninist structure, which is a single party monopoly throughout all institutions. The problem with this is you cannot be half communist. You're either communist or you're not. When they begin to liberalize politically, what they discover is that people don't want to remain inside a single party to debate. Some people want to criticize the party and some people want to form their own political party. And so political liberalization under communism turns out to be a form of self-liquidation. Hmm. We saw that in Hungary in 1956. We saw that in Czechoslovakia, Prague Spring in 1968. We saw that with Gorbachev's Soviet Union. We get fooled because they can liberalize the economy. Mm -hmm. They need the market dynamism. They need the GDP growth. They need the job creation that private sector activity gives them. But then they continue to keep a tight hold politically that Communist Party monopoly. Mm -hmm. So they never liberalize economically uh, politically simultaneously because if they do they cease to exist interesting how resilient is the chinese communist party rule today and if, if it were to uh end somehow what would replace it all authoritarian regimes can survive until there's an alternative to them mm -hmm. they can rule very poorly they can starve their people they can fail across the board on issues, but they can muddle through and survive by suppressing political alternatives. So 
they don't need to be resilient in the same way as a democratic regime needs to be. Mm -hmm. They just need to suppress political alternatives, which the Chinese communist regime is very good at. Mm -hmm. I would say, though, that there is an end game for communist regimes, which we've seen globally. It is a right-wing authoritarian uh, xenophobic nationalism. That's what we see in Russia with the Putin regime. It's what we see in Belarus with Lukashenko's regime. We have it throughout Central Asia. We have a version of it in Hungary, a version of it in Poland. We had a version of it in Serbia. And so we're now seeing inside the Chinese Communist Party this move towards hardline authoritarian nativist xenophobic nationalism. It's already growing inside the framework of the party. Mm -hmm. The challenge for the Chinese Communist Party, they might be happy to have a right-wing authoritarian xenophobic nationalist regime. Mm -hmm. They might be fine with that, but to get there, they have to go through something called Gorbachev. Mm -hmm. That's the stage they don't want to see because that's the collapse and implosion potential. Mm -hmm. So that's why they're stuck. They're stuck refusing to liberalize politically because they don't want to go through that Gorbachev stage to get out to the other side, which is the Putin stage. Yeah. So there's a hybrid nature to the Chinese communist regime. You'll also notice, Tom, that even though they liberalize economically, it's yeah. not a linear process. They also get worried because people grow rich, entrepreneurs, dynamism in the society and the economy, create alternative sources of power. Mm -hmm. People have their own wealth and they wanna make their own decisions. And so the Communist Party is threatened by the very economic liberalization that it needs for the growth and the job creation. Mm -hmm. So we see opening the economy and then we see strangulation of the private economy. Nice. They insert communist party bosses into private sector companies. They close off some of the funding for the private sector and push the funding towards the state-owned enterprises that they control better. And then they need the job creation again. And so then they open a little bit more again, the economic side. But the political side, if they open up, it's suicide. Got it. Uh, Stephen, some people say that America's confrontation is with the Chinese Communist Party and not with the Chinese people. Do you agree with that delineation? Uh, no, I don't. The Chinese Communist Party is a very nasty regime, and it is the regime that we are confronted with today. At the same time, the rise of China is a long-term prospect. We will be dealing with the dynamism of Chinese society and economy long after that Chinese communist regime is gone. We have to learn to compete with China and compete effectively with China, independent of what regime might be there. China is a remarkable civilization. It's incredible what China has achieved through millennia. And mm -hmm. so the idea that it's just the regime is comforting, but in fact, the challenge is much bigger and we have to focus on that long term. Yeah, Stephen, we have a question from Michael. He says, uh, the CCP doesn't seem to be able to keep their fingers out of the private sector. He refers to Hong Kong. 
uh, in short, in the short and short, medium and long run, can they really compete with democratic capitalist states like the U.S.? Uh, if we don't undermine ourselves, they cannot beat us. We're the only ones who can beat us. If we fail to invest in our human capital, in our infrastructure, in good governance, in reinventing our alliances, if we fail to reinvest in our strengths, then they have a chance. Mm -hmm. But if we become an example again and we regain our mojo, and we invest in ourselves, I would not bet on anybody else. Yeah, got it. Let me ask you this, Stephen. Are, are we in a new Cold War with China? Should we be in a Cold War with China? And what should U.S. policy be towards China? We are in a new Cold War with China, even though we're still debating it. And, and, and the reason we're in a new Cold War with China is because it's a necessary move, not a misunderstanding. There's a fundamental clash of state interests, and even more fundamentally, there's a clash of values. And so that's not a misunderstanding and that's not going away. When we had the first Cold War with the Soviet Union, it took us a long time to admit that we were in a Cold War. Almost through the invasion by North Korea of South Korea, we were still debating whether we were in a Cold War or whether there was a misunderstanding here or not. We are in a Cold War and it's the right thing to do. And moreover, a Cold War is better than a hot war. The reason we did a Cold War was not to fight World War III, but to compete in ways that we could succeed and contain Soviet expansionism. That same compete and be ourselves and win without fighting the Third World War that's why we're in a new Cold War with China. It has begun already, and we need to not only realize that, but fight it properly, fight mm -hmm. it strategically, fight it smartly. Mm -hmm. And, with, and how, how does one do that? What's the smart policy towards China now? We have three pillars in our debate about China policy in the U.S. Mm -hmm. The first of, of the third, well, let's call it a triad. The first part of the triad is China's rise is inevitable. Okay, let's just surrender. Mm -hmm. That's a shorthand description of what I would call the Obama administration's policy vis-a-vis -vis China. Late in the game, they woke up and they started talking awkwardly about a pivot to Asia as if we weren't in Asia already, and then they ran out of time. The, the second triad is let's go to war. Uh, China is a threat, and we need to prepare for war with China. Let's call that the John Bolton position. Uh, John Bolton never met a war he didn't like. Uh, I don't think America would benefit from going to war with China. So I don't think war, just like I don't think surrender, is a good option. The third part of the triad of the debate that we're having domestically about China policy is what we call co-evolution or win-win. This is usually associated with Henry Kissinger. And Kissinger is right. We have to learn how to live with China. The problem, however, is when you get into the details, it's not clear what the issues are for the win-win. For example, 5G technology. Either you would adopt the Chinese system or you adopt the Western system. There's really no middle ground. There's no win-win there. 
-hmm. It's binary. Mm -hmm. South China Sea. Either there's freedom of navigation or there is no freedom of navigation, right? So it's not clear where the accommodation ends in, in a so-called win-win scenario. Yeah. However, living with China is correct. So what I like to talk about is the old Reagan playbook. The old Reagan playbook, which gets forgotten and needs to be dusted off time and time again. It's, it's, the simplicity of it is where its power comes from. And it's the following. Strength plus diplomacy, right? Strength, which gives you leverage and negotiation. It's what George Shultz has been talking about at Hoover since he left the Reagan administration. Mm -hmm. You have to be strong when you go into negotiation, but you also have to negotiate. Hawkishness mm -hmm. and strength are not ends in themselves. You have to be ready to pocket the concessions when your strength works. Moreover, diplomacy without leverage, diplomacy without strength also doesn't work. So we need to get a State Department back. Uh, it needs to be reinvented, and we need to invest in our diplomacy. But we also need to invest in deterrence and recapture deterrence, not for deterrence sake, but as I said, for the negotiation end of the Reagan playbook. Strength hmm. plus diplomacy, strength plus negotiation. That's the playbook on China. Yeah. What, uh, before we leave China, let's just ask uh, very specific questions. Hong Kong and Taiwan, Michael asked a question, is a Chinese invasion and reintegration of Taiwan inevitable? I'll further that by asking, is it uh, inevitable that Hong Kong be subsumed entirely within the rubric of uh, the rules of mainland China? No, it's not inevitable. Mm -hmm. And we can do something about it. And we need a smarter policy and we need a public discussion about what's at stake. So when you look over China's challenges, uh, they have six challenges around their periphery. Manchuria, Inner Mongolia, uh, Xinjiang, where we have the concentration camps, Tibet, those are four of them. Mm -hmm. Those are predominantly ethnic challenges to, to China's rule. Manchuria was overcome just by Han Chinese flooding it. Inner Mongolia was overcome by Han Chinese settlers flooding it. Xinjiang is now being so-called pacified with these concentration camps. And Tibet, of course, also is effectively in lockdown. Mm -hmm. Those are all significant challenges to the regime in Beijing. But far more significant challenges are not the ethnic ones, but the political ones, mm -hmm. Hong Kong and Taiwan. And we need to understand that we can play a role here. Taiwan was supposed to become politically integrated with China once they got economically integrated. It, yeah. was, a version, it was a version of our own delusion. Our delusion was if we integrate China economically, it reforms and becomes more like us politically. China's delusion was if we integrate Taiwan economically, they'll want to become part of China politically. Mm -hmm. But of course, the Taiwanese have moved farther and farther away from identification with the Chinese regime on the mainland. Mm -hmm. This is especially true for the younger generation. So the status quo from the point of view of Beijing has failed. Mm -hmm the status quo of pretending they're not independent when they are de facto independent. Mm -hmm. That has failed because Taiwan is drifting farther away. Mm 
So we need to be very concerned about actions that Xi Jinping's regime might take vis-a-vis Taiwan. It's not an amphibious invasion across the strait. It is more possibly an economic collapse where they use their economic leverage, they use the economic integration to force Taiwan to its knees. And then they say they're intervening militarily to rescue the Taiwanese people from the economic collapse that the mainlanders have themselves perpetrated. That's the kind of stuff I worry about. We need to be talking about what's America's role and commitment there. With Hong Kong, we have granted them special status. Now the Chinese communist regime in Beijing is violating its own agreement of one country, two systems in imposing this external security law. We shouldn't remove the status, the special status of Hong Kong, because that only achieves the the goal that Beijing has, which is to eliminate the one country, two systems and just make it one country, one system. We should be punishing Beijing, not punishing Hong Kong for what they're doing in Hong Kong right now. Yeah. Stephen, last question on China. I was going to move on, but this question is just too keen not to ask. It's it's from Lei. Says, dear Dr. Kotkin, uh, huge fan here. As a historian, have you ever met and have you ever seen or met an illiberal superpower as strong as China? China not only has a huge GDP, it has also developed a totalitarian regime that appears to accommodate technological development and a meritocratic and dynamic society. Have you ever seen anything like that in history before? No, we haven't. That's an excellent point. This is. The, the wealthiest and most powerful authoritarian regime we've known in history. And usually authoritarian regimes don't get this rich. Mm-hmm. Usually we don't have opaque authoritarian regimes that accumulate this much wealth and power. Mm-hmm. Usually they undermine themselves. But at the same time, Tom, let's remember that there's never been a liberal constitutional rule of law republic that has been as powerful as the United States is in world history. So just as China is unprecedented in its power, so is the United States. And we're early in this contest and we have tremendous levers on our side and we're the only ones who could defeat ourselves. Yeah, Stephen, let's move on to uh, Russia. Before we do that, I wanna remind everybody that I'm Tom Gilligan and this is the Hoover Institution's virtual policy briefing with Stephen Kotkin. Uh, Many people say that Russia, unlike China, is a declining power. Is that true? Is Russia really a declining power? Yes, they are a declining power. They're a declining power with a UN Security Council veto. They're a declining power with one of the two biggest nuclear arsenals in the world. Mm -hmm. They're a declining power with a geography that puts them in Europe, the Middle East, and the Far East simultaneously. So they're a declining power certainly in economic terms, the 11th or the 12th or the 13th biggest economy and nominal GDP, depending how you measure. But however, they're formidable in the kind of levers of power that they have, most of which are historical legacies that they inherited from the Soviet Union Russian Empire. But so the decline is real, but the power is also real. What, let's talk just briefly about U.S.-Russia relations. Why, why do they appear to be so bad? 
Uh, why is there so much tension? And how do you see U.S.-Russia relations evolving in the near term? Once again, this is not a misunderstanding. People keep telling me that, you know, we just need to talk to them. We just need to understand them better. We just need, you know, the previous administration was bad. We're smarter. We'll reset Russia relations. We'll do a better job. We'll come to an understanding. In fact, there's a fundamental clash of state interests. And even bigger than that, there's a fundamental clash of values with Russia. The mm -hmm. highest U.S. value is freedom, often understood as freedom from the state. The highest value in Russia is the state. You couldn't have more diametrically opposed value systems there. So the bad relations are not an accident. They're not a misunderstanding. Having said that, we can manage the differences better. Mm -hmm. Just because you have differences doesn't mean you have to have confrontation all the time, right? Managing difference is called diplomacy. Once again, it's the strength plus the negotiation. You revive the deterrence. You show that you can punish bad behavior. But at the same time, you have a negotiation process so that you can reward behavior modification. Mm -hmm. And so this strength plus diplomacy applies to most of our relationships, but they're fundamentally because we differ in state interests and in values. And so we're never going to be uh, in, a, in a place where there are ally necessarily, but we can still be less confrontational with them by applying the strength diplomacy approach. Got it. Uh, before we turn to the U.S., uh, there are several questions here. David, Lennard, and Paul basically ask your opinion about the Trump administration policies towards China and Russia. Are they what they should be? Uh, and another David asked, do you think President Biden's policies towards China and Russia would be different? And if so, how? Uh, unfortunately, I don't think the Trump administration has a policy uh, towards China and Russia. Hmm. It has uh, individuals on different sides of the debate who have a lot of infighting. And it has a president who can't really make up his mind and uh, doesn't follow through on some of the statements he makes. What you have are good instincts. The instincts meaning we have to do deals even with our adversaries, but you also have, uh, let's say, improper follow through or inability to follow through and close those deals to American advantage, right? Mm -hmm. We're not looking for deals just for deals sake. We're looking for deals that support American interests. Right. As far as the Democratic Party, there's no evidence right now of a, of a sophisticated, superior China or Russia policy in democratic circles. Let's remember, they were in power only four years ago, and things weren't so rosy then. Yeah. And so they, they have some thinking to do if they want to claim to have a superior policy, either on Russia or on China, and they don't have much time if they plan on uh, using the power that they may inherit, depending what happens in November. So mm -hmm. as a society, we, we need to root any policy vis-a-vis -vis China and Russia in a broad consensus of the population. We live in a democracy. Policy just doesn't come from a really brilliant paper at Brookings Institution or at AEI 
let alone Hoover. Policy comes from your ability to articulate it, to explain it to the American people, and to get a bipartisan consensus to implement it because the American people are behind it. And, and that's what we did, for example, under President Reagan. And so policy is bigger than just an administration. It's a societal level challenge and it involves a lot more work than just, but the policy papers we're seeing from the democratic side right now don't necessarily inspire tremendous confidence, even as we see floundering in the Trump administration and foreign policy. Got it, got it. I want to remind everybody you're listening to Hoover Senior Fellow Stephen Kotkin. You can find more re research by Hoover Fellows at our website, hoover.org. Let's turn to our own country now, Stephen. Um, and you, you and I were talking the other day, and you made an interesting comment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to paraphrase it and let you kind of elaborate on it. You said, heretofore, if one wanted to study Maoist uh, philosophy, you had to learn Chinese language and read the, the writings and the books that were written by the Chinese people on Maoist thoughts. Uh, you then said something like, now Americans can learn it by just observing what's going on in the streets of our country. Okay, did I get that kind of right? And could, could you elaborate on what you were trying to say when you told me that? Yes, I used to study struggle sessions and re-education camps and all the rest when I went to the Hoover Library and Archive. Mm -hmm. Now I just either turn on the television or I participate in campus discussions. Mm -hmm. There are some real issues that need to be addressed in American society. The issues that are being raised are not fake issues. They're real issues. The question is, how do we address them? We need to engage. We can't be afraid to engage. The key, however, is on what terms do we engage on these difficult, necessary issues. Let's take the question of diversity, right? We're, we, we're, we hear a lot about the need to be diverse and to take diversity into account. The problem with this discussion for me is that everything is diverse except the category diversity itself. The category diversity is a kind of imposition of one understanding and many other ways to understand diversity are out of bounds. So in my view, we need to open up that category and we need to make diversity itself diverse. So just to, just to clarify, Stephen, to make sure everybody understands what you're saying, you're saying, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, you're saying the current understanding of diversity as it's being used in the debate has to do with ra racial and ethnic diversity. There are other types of diversity like viewpoint diversity that are neglected in that conversation. Am I getting that right? That's exactly right. This is not a displacement. This is not an either or. I'm not trying to force out other definitions of diversity. I'm trying to open up the term. Okay. So when we admit military veterans to the campus, people who've served in our armed services, and, and they come to a college campus, they have very different life experiences and they bring very different perspectives and that diversifies our campuses. And, and once again, this is not at the expense of other understandings of diversity. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to say that our understanding of diversity needs to trump the other ones. Mm -hmm. We're trying to say, let's take diversity seriously and let's open up the category. You know, mm -hmm. There are lots of other categories here that we need to also open up. Inclusion, for example. Mm -hmm. We hear a lot about how we need to be more inclusive on our campuses. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Well, we just finished at Princeton University rejecting almost 40,000 students in the admissions process, admitting only about a thousand and change for the mm -hmm. coming year. So I don't understand how that's inclusive. To me, it looks like we're an elitist institution and we're exclusive. Mm -hmm. When we hire faculty, we get 100, 200 applications, but we don't consider most of them worthy of being hired at our institution. Mm -hmm. And then once we hire the person, we talk about inclusiveness. So for me, the category inclusiveness has to be opened up and I wanna talk about excellence. Mm -hmm. Because we're not admitting just anybody. Mm -hmm. We're not hiring just anybody. We're an elite institution and we shouldn't pretend otherwise. And so let's open up inclusiveness. Let's open up the other categories. Change, for example. Mm -hmm. Everybody's now talking about how we need change. They're not actually talking about change. They're talking about social engineering. They're talking about revolution. So I favor change. I'm in favor of change. But I'm in favor of change, which takes account of tradition, which is gradual and consensual and therefore legitimate, mm -hmm. which doesn't produce perverse and unintended consequences, right? The founding of conservatism is essentially traced to Edmund Burke who reacted to the French Revolution's extremism, but Burke was not against change. He was in favor of change, once again, within traditions, consensually done, without perverse and unintended consequences. So if we're gonna argue about change, we're actually arguing about social engineering. So let's be careful the terms on which we're gonna engage in this debate. I could go on, there are many other categories being used, but I think you get the message. Yeah, let me ask you, someone asked the following question. Um, what do you make of the current civil unrest resulting from George Floyd's death? And I guess I want to ask you, I mean, you studied the, the Soviet or the Russian Revolution and the Chinese Revolution uh, extensively. Uh, do you see any, what's different and what's uh, the same about what's going on in the United States and these other two revolutions of the 20th century? Like all Americans, I was sickened to see what happened to George Floyd, and I'm hoping that justice is done uh, to remedy what is a horrible wrong. He's not the only example. There are other examples that we could also mention. And so when I see people protesting because that happens, I understand that. And peaceful protest is written into our Constitution. And we do not want to see ourselves whereby we act like those powers we're in competition with. When George Kennan wrote the long telegram in 1946, which eventually culminated in the policy of containment of the Soviet Union, his last paragraph was very important in that long telegram of 1946. And he said, we cannot fight our adversary using our adversary's methods and become like our adversary, because that would be defeat, not victory. Same thing with us. We cannot use violent force against peaceful protests and end up looking like pictures from Hong Kong where the, the Chinese Communist Party is repressing peaceful protests, or pictures from Tehran where the Iranian mullahs are repressing. Let's remember that we're a gigantic, diverse society. We go from the far left to the far right. 
That's fine as far as I'm concerned. We're able to debate those things. Our institutions, however, are really strong and we need to use our institutions to find consensus on difficult issues. Mm-hmm. We're not in a revolutionary situation like Russia and China because our institutions are much stronger. Revolutions mm-hmm. happen when the state is hollowed out, mm-hmm. when the state has internally eroded or been corroded and is easy to push over. We have peaceful protest, unfortunately, sometimes not peaceful protest, which I don't support. But when we have peaceful protest, it's not a sign of a revolutionary situation, no matter how loud it is, no matter how much it can alarm people. It's just something which is a normal part of a democratic society. We would be more concerned if we were, had a hollow state, hollow and failing institutions, if we didn't have a judiciary anymore, if we didn't have a civil service, if we didn't have elected representatives at the local level in addition to the federal level, we have all that. We're disappointed in how our institutions function. We know that they're not functioning as well as they should. Mm. We're living through this pandemic where we've not covered ourselves in glory. But those institutions are still strong and the remedy lies in those institutions. And that's the difference between the Russia-China revolutionary situations and where we are in America. Yeah. Stephen, Brett Brett, uh, kind of asked a question that pushes back on your notion of Burkean change. He says, what does it mean to change within traditions when traditions themselves are often the problem? And could you address this question within the context of what we're seeing with respect to the treatment of statues and other types of symbols uh, that possibly venerate or memorialize or in some sense, historicize uh, the Civil War period in America? Yeah, all very, very difficult but important questions for us to consider. So let's, let's go sideways, though, in on this. Let's take inequality for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people think that inequality is perhaps the defining issue or one of the defining issues in our society today. What's happened on the conservative side, not all, but some, have argued that inequality is a false issue. It doesn't really exist, or if it does exist, it's not really important. And and I don't agree with that. What that does is it hands the inequality issue over to the left side of the political spectrum, and it's a very galvanizing issue, and moreover, it's a real problem. Milton Friedman, if you go on YouTube and Google Milton Friedman or look up Milton Friedman on any video, you'll see that he spoke quite often and eloquently about inequality. Of course, he did not speak about inequality of outcome. He spoke about inequality of opportunity. You cannot achieve inequality of outcome. If you try to achieve inequality of outcome, you'll fail and you'll produce perverse and unintended consequences. But inequality of opportunity is a real challenge and we need to do much, much better on it. And so, That's an issue we need to seize and we need to talk about and we need to come up with policies around inequality of opportunity. That's an issue that needs to be owned. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about change and change within tradition, it's not a passive approach. Moreover, it can be quite daring in its approach. You know, as far as your question about statues, a very fraught issue. 
if you look over historical experience, uh, most statues in history have been destroyed. Very few statues have survived over time. It's usually because uh, a new group comes to power or a new empire is formed or a new civilization displaces a previous civilization and they smash or destroy or take down the previous cultural symbols in order to put their own up. This happens time again. Sometimes they just want the bronze and they melt things down just for the value of the materials, but usually it's a displacement of cultural symbols. Uh, I think we should be much more cautious and humble about this. We put up statues for a few reasons. One is veneration. So for example, George Washington, he owned slaves. Do we put up statues because George Washington owned slaves? Is that what we're venerating? No. We put up George Washington statues because he was our first president and a successful president. And moreover, he was a general in the Revolutionary War that made our country possible. Do we know that he owned slaves? Of course we do. We have an open society and that information is freely available and freely circulates even if your teacher doesn't tell you, you can still discover the information that Washington owned slaves. So we don't venerate every aspect of a person and we don't venerate everything that they did, all their behavior, but we do venerate certain aspects and certain behavior. Another reason we put up statues is for reconciliation. When we've had differences, when we've had disputes that even rise to the level of civil war, it's okay to put up statues that have as the purpose reconciliation. Moreover, it's okay to put up statues that originally were designed for a different purpose, for veneration, but we can repurpose them for reconciliation. I think that monuments that exist from the past are hugely valuable as teaching moments. You can put up a monument next to one that people feel is controversial. You can put a monument of one of George Washington's slaves next to his own monument, because he did own slaves, and that is part of our history. What we saw in Richmond, Virginia was very interesting, Tom. Here goes right to your point about the Confederacy. There's a gigantic statue of Robert E. Lee, the general. It was too big to pull down. And so the protesters who protested the presence of Robert E. Lee's statue in Richmond, they instead wrote graffiti on the statue. They wrote explanatory messages or signs on the statue. Ironically, this is exactly what a commission in Virginia had recommended for Confederate era or post-Confederate era statues dealing with the Confederacy. To contextualize them, to explain them, to put up these kinds of signs or, other, or alternative monuments next to them. And so I think that that's one way that we can manage. We can repurpose statues for reconciliation purposes and also for explanatory purposes. You know, you can't uphold values with methods that contradict those values. Mm -hmm. If you say you wanna tear down a statue that doesn't live up to your values, the process of tearing down also doesn't live up to those values, right? Yeah. Statues yeah. can be replaced. Sometimes they need to be removed. 
Sometimes they need to be relocated. But the methods of doing that when they're non-consensual and when they're potentially violent, those methods can be in contradiction to the values that are being espoused while you're saying you need to remove them to uphold those values. Yeah, so well, I'm a little bit more cautious, but I'm not against uh, revisiting monuments and statues. That's a conversation we, as a strong nation, can engage. Yeah, we can. Let me end, Stephen, with just a couple questions that kind of uh, relates to your last point, which is about the method for re the removal of statues. Greg asked, "Is the expansion of statue toppling to abolitionists and Union generals who destroyed the Confederacy a sign of strong institutions?" There's obviously a whiff of sarcasm in that question. Uh, it seems this is almost uh, Jacobin-like. Should we not be concerned about this? And then Walter asked the question, are we witnessing the collapse of Western civilization? Once again, I'm not afraid. We live in a large and diverse society and the far left, just like the far right, will be a part of our society. What's the strength in our society is the middle. That's where the American people are. And that's where the political parties ought to be. You know, the Jacobins, we see them in action now. They're not a majority of the country. And they don't have the power to overturn our institutions. And so we need to, of course, rule of law, uphold the law in all forms. At the same time, we shouldn't be afraid. We're much stronger than we give ourselves credit to be. You know, mm -hmm. This is the way to deal with the situation. Should we not read the ancient Greeks? Should we give up all of the ancient Greeks completely? Is there nothing of value in the ancient Greeks? After all, they practiced slavery in Athens. Should we, have, should we now be compelled to give up everything? Mm -hmm. Not just one thing, but everything because Athens practiced slavery, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the proposition that's before us. We can't do that. Mm -hmm. Should we give up constitutional order and rule of law because Thomas Jefferson owned slaves? Of course not. However, should we use constitutional order and rule of law to manage debates about the fact that Thomas Jefferson owned slaves? Yes, right? One of the things about slavery and one of the things about human rights and about civil rights and one of the things about the controversy we have now is the very institutions that were born when there was slavery are the institutions where we need to appeal to in rectifying past wrongs like slavery or whatever it might be. The beauty of the 18th century revolution is it had this category citizen. Mm -hmm. The category citizen didn't include every American who was living on the territory at the time. It didn't include Native Americans. It didn't include the slaves imported against their will from Africa. It didn't include women. It didn't include a lot of men who didn't own property. However, over time, through struggle, the category citizen was expanded. And the 18th century revolution, which originated in these exclusions ended up to be very inclusive over time. Mm -hmm. And for example, slaves could be emancipated and they could get the right to vote. It mm -hmm. was late 
too late and it was after tremendous struggle and we're still dealing with it because some people feel and they're correct that in many communities because they're black they have problems in being able to register to vote this problem exists nonetheless the category citizen can expand to include them it included women women properly got the right to vote once again late in the game and once again after tremendous struggle and once again it's not always perfect but that's the beauty of the 18th century system that we are privileged to be a part of it enables more inclusiveness over time and its values and institutions are the very ones we need to use to correct those injustices that are real in our society and that we see living out today. That's the difference between us and authoritarian regimes. Mm -hmm. Stephen, thanks for the discussion. It was wonderful. Thanks for joining us. It was my pleasure. We'll see you again soon, I hope. You bet. Uh, we are taking hiatus next week for the Independence Day holiday, but we will be back on Tuesday, July 7th at 11 a.m. Pacific time, 2 p.m. Eastern time with Shelby Still, who will be talking about race in America. Shelby is the Robert J. and Mary Me Oster Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and he has written extensively on race in American society and the consequences of contemporary social problems on race relations. His work has earned him many awards and accolades. Our discussion with Shelby will be very timely, and I look forward to seeing you then. Uh, until then, I want to wish you a very happy and healthy 4th of July weekend. Please stay safe, and I look forward to seeing you in a couple weeks. Bye-bye.